you've already heard it all. But now you resonate. The world has pushed you out of what you thought you knew, your comfort zone, and into this strange place, this slightly off reality. Welcome to the Truth Serum Podcast, hosted by the controversial and funny Dom Bates, author, mother, human, and all-round thought leader. The time has come to realign your essence with your experience. We all know this world is changing. You're here now because you've personally felt it, and your reality has reflected the Truth Serum Podcast, getting to the root of what really is. And now, Dawn Bates. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, cats in the corner and dogs on the armchair this time. And welcome to the next episode of The Truth Serum with me, your host, Dawn Bates. I have today with me a a young lady called Mary Shirley. Um, And I will be honest, she doesn't know this, but I'm going to share this with you. I actually giggled the first time I said it because I actually thought of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, And I was like, oh, no, that's Mary Shirley. Okay, slightly different person. So this is how my mind works. It's all in literature um, a lot of the time. And um, I met Mary when a mutual friend of ours, Lucianne Malman, who I met through my studies with Oxford Uni, um, when we were both looking into ethics, I met Mary and she were co- you were hosting uh, an event that we were both, um, that I was a speaker at. Um, and Mary is, now let me get this title correct, because Mary works in corporate compliance And she's a lawyer. She's also the co-host of the Great Women in Compliance podcast. But she's also now an award-winning author of a book. Um, I will let her give you the full title because it's a little bit longer. Um, And I'm going to ask her to share the story of this book um, and the awards because it fits close to my heart in self-publishing and the snobbery around it and the prestige around it and also some attitudes towards publishing in general. We're also going to be discussing compliance and what that actually means, especially in today's climate, um, because as you all know, I don't tend to comply with a lot of the rules out there. So welcome to the show, Mary. Um, lovely to have you on here. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dawn. It's a pleasure to be here and, and thank you for the kind introduction. You're welcome. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about yourself? Sure. Well, um, for me, I think one of the things that jumps out uh, the most when I I think of what I'm known for is probably being an international citizen, which I think you can relate to pretty strongly (laughs) yourself. Uh, The United States is the fifth country that I've lived in um, across four regions of the world. You can probably tell by my accent that I am not an American, uh, which is where I'm currently based. Uh, I'm from New Zealand and um, have spent time living and working in Asia and the Middle East as well. So I love taking cultural aspects um, and centralized compliance programs and wrapping that compliance program around the cultural idiosyncrasies uh, and needs of uh, different areas of the world. Um, I think... Uh, that's the the business side of things. Um, in terms of being a person like you, I very much value authenticity. Um, I consider myself a kindness evangelist. And one of the things that I'm loving about um, the business world as we've evolved over the last little while is that kindness seems to have gone from a personal value to being more deeply embraced by Uh, companies uh, and organizations in the professional world. And I think as ESG uh, makes more of a mark, we're only going to see more of that, which makes me very excited for our future. Excellent. I I like the fact that you uh, are noticing that there's more kindness coming in because I remember way back when, um, almost 25 years ago, before I set up my first business, everyone was like, you're too nice to go into business you're just too nice to go into business. I was like, what do you mean I'm too nice to go into business? Like business is made up of people and people like to be nice and people like people to be nice to them. So why would that make it me too nice to be in business? What, how are you seeing that manifest? 
Um, a really nice example of that, I think, uh, the social media company Snap, uh, they released a new code of conduct during 2021. And um, first off, it's really user-friendly, but what you notice when you start reading it is that there is kindness evangelism weaving as a theme right through that document. And so to see that in a business ethics document, the cornerstone of a compliance program, embedding kindness into it, um, that I think is fantastic. Another area um, that we've seen this come up more recently in the business context is the um, founder of JetBlue Airways has just uh, created a new airline called Breeze. And uh, he has said that he wants it to be the nicest airline in the world. And so um, with that, I think we're seeing um, a shift. Um, another example that I would suggest hits on this type of area is a change in legislation in New Zealand with their data privacy law. Um, Section 100 of the Act, uh, which came out in December of 2020, allows for apologies without um, admitting liability for a privacy breach. Uh, and so that's something that I think is unique. I've not seen it. Isn't that just a get out of jail free card, though, for the um, for the people who commit the uh, well, we can't say crime because they, you know, they it might not be a crime, but if they're being um, offering a an apology without admitting to liabilities, isn't that um, some would say it's uh, just a jet, get out of jail free card for the company? Yeah, that's an interesting point. So um, I actually used to work for the Data Privacy um, Authority in New Zealand many many years ago, and I'm not speaking on behalf. Um, of the, the, the Privacy Commission or the Privacy Commissioner, but I would say that um, anecdotally, my perception of working in that arena is that a breach of privacy is a very emotive uh, subject. Mm. And it's why we so often use the word violation when we speak of privacy breaches. People feel violated. Um, they feel like their, their privacy has been violated. Um, and so that's a, it's a very inflammatory uh, situation, and rightly so. Mm. Um, many consider privacy to be a basic human right. There is argument. Absolutely. Um, either way, but um, I'm of, of the view that it, it should be. Um, and so what my observations were working in that arena is that a lot of the time people just really want to be heard and have it acknowledged that something went wrong. Um, and when we, when we talk about an apology, I think there's a very big difference between saying, I'm sorry that happened to you versus I'm sorry um, that I caused you this harm or that my organization caused you this harm. Um, and I think where there has been um, a non-malicious act um, and, and reasonable or due care took place, but something slipped, um, in that situation, I think there is a really nice balance between letting the, the person whose privacy was breached feel like they've had an appropriate forum mm. to um, voice concerns. And of course, a lot of the time with settlements, we often see um, situations where settlements are paid out and people feel like they've been somewhat um, compensated for something going wrong, but without admission of liability. So um, overall, I would say my view is that um, I think it's a, a great step in the right direction. What will be interesting will be to see whether this approach is taken up in other areas of the law and in other jurisdictions as mm. well. I think you've, you've made a very uh, good point there about the, the distinction, because I think a lot of the time, whenever people are discussing something that like we would, uh, as you know, I write for the House of Preeminence. And we have like a posse powwow every Wednesday for all our subscribers and our readers. And we were discussing feminism and the feminine energy and what it is to be feminine. I said, what we really have to be careful of here is that we get the distinctions correct and that we understand what each of these words mean for each of us within this conversation before we can move forward. Um, because I remember what came up for me when you were, you were saying is, I remember saying something to my ex-brother-in-law 
Um, and I wasn't sorry for what I said to him. I was sorry I said it to him in his own home. Um, he needed to hear what was said to him. And no one else was saying it, but, you know, like I, I'm there full in a china shop. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry that I said it to you in your own home, but I'm not sorry for what I said. You know, and I think that's the thing. It's uh, knowing what you're sorry for and why. Um, and so, for example, here in Colombia, the word sorry is used so much. Mm. Everyone is sorry for everything. And it's very interesting for me. And as you say, like moving around the world and living in different places, you, you see these, um, you see different behaviors and what things mean and what, mm. um, so very, I hear so, why are you sorry? You haven't done anything. Mm. Oh, well, it's just nice that you're, you know, and I'm like, well, no, I'm, cause for example, we're having um, a new kitchen built up on the terrace um, that, so that we can cook as we overlook the ocean um and I asked one day I was like oh, are we having builders today so that I can do it or you know am I free to do a, um uh an interview in my room or a recording in my room oh yeah we're really sorry I'm like if I was at home and I was having a new kitchen put in the, the noise would still be there but it, it's interesting how certain people attach to certain things um and add meaning to certain things and you touched on there about privacy violations one of the reasons why I came off the other social media platforms other than LinkedIn mm. um, is because I didn't want I wanted my private life back mm. and I felt that my, and one of the reasons I got rid of my marketing department was because they wanted me to share more of my private life they wanted people to share what I was up to on my travels I'm like no mm. it's my private life and I want a private life. I don't want it all over social media. Yes, mm. I write about certain aspects in my books about mm. a situation that's happened, but that's a teaching moment. Mm. But that's because, you know, of certain aspects. And I think you're right that when a company sells our information, because we haven't read the terms and conditions, uh, because most people just accept them. They don't even open mm. them. They just click the tick box. Yes, I agree to terms and conditions because they want whatever it is on offer. Mm. In the terms of compliance, how does these companies selling our data and everything um, uh, and us feeling violated? I mean, I'm not asking you to speak on the whole, the whole mm. of everybody else. I, you know, this mm. is a conversation between Dawn and Mary and everyone that's listening um, and watching on YouTube. But I think a lot of us have to just accept that we're sometimes a little too precious about certain things and we have to take ownership ourselves of what we're agreeing to rather than looking to always punish organizations um, for running a business because a lot of the time terms and conditions are pretty standard wouldn't you say? I think that's right and I think what you're getting at here is a fundamental between the difference between ethics and compliance. And I work in the space which covers both. So regulatory compliance um, is very similar to legal requirements. You either can or you cannot do something by the law. Ethics is a little different. Ethics is the area in which um, we decide sometimes as individuals, sometimes as companies, what our shared values are gonna be and what's gonna guide us in terms mm -hmm. of how we treat each other other stakeholders and the ways in which we do business. So, for example, the terms and conditions, that's regulatory compliance. They, you know, you're opting in by saying, yeah, I, I agree that you can sell my data or I agree that you can bombard my email inbox with um, your scanning and advertising as frequently as you would like. So compliance asks us, can I do something? Ethics focuses around just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think, again, in this um, current environment that we're in, um, this is going to be a turning point for companies in terms of consumers saying, um, I like what you stand for, and therefore I'm going to give you my loyalty or my business or my time, whatever it is. Um, and so what you're hitting on is the fact that a lot of the time companies can do what they're doing, but the critical area is, or the critical point is going to be, um, if you choose to act in a way that may be a little smarmy, um, will that detrimentally uh, impact your 
sales, uh, profit, revenue, or other type of success measures. Because mm. you touched on how the, the current climate, because we're seeing a lot of companies tell people if they, uh, if they I mean, I don't want to go into the whole um, pandemic, COVID-19 malarkey, because there, I think there's enough of it out there. And that's not what I want to entertain on this show. But we're actually seeing a lot of people, um, like friends of mine in Australia, they're being told that if they don't um, have the vaccine, then they're not going to be permitted to enter the property. It's not that they're going to lose their job, but they're not permitted to enter on the property. So they're playing with the law um, and the wording of what, so that they can get around um, the human rights violation of, um, um, of mandating something which is a sovereign right. It's an inalienable right to choose what we do or we do not do with our own body and our own health choices. But what the company are doing are saying, you are not allowed to enter our premises. And I find that that is, like you said, there's an ethical aspect of that. And one of the things that I found when I was studying ethics uh, and morals with the University of Oxford um, was the law is based on ethics, or it should at least be. And there's the greatest, uh, the greatest number is the ones that actually get provided. Um, so for the, I think it's the greatest uh, happiness for the greatest number, I think is one of the terminologies that we were looking for. Um, but that doesn't always mean that the greatest number of people is, are the right number of people because there's a huge amount of people that eat processed food, but we know that that's not good for our body. We know that that causes a cancer environment, which is not good for us, but it keeps the greatest number of people happy. It doesn't mean it's right, but it keeps the greatest number of people happy. So therefore it's allowed to happen. So you have a really hard job. I mean, I, I know that we focus very much on the, theory, on the business side of it, but how does this impact Mary as a human being who believes in kindness when you see so many human rights violated around the world and you're, you're, you've chosen a career to help make things better for people um, because you're passionate about kindness. And you want it to be a fair and just world, but you're seeing all these things going. How do you, as an individual, marry these two things together? Sometimes it's 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 really uh, tricky. I think the best thing that I can do is to role model the behaviours that I want to see in others. Um, but from a practical standpoint, you know, I've lived in a lot of countries that are really... Um, uh, very safe. Um, and in terms of the news in the United States, it's to the point where just one night of news would be at least a month's worth of activity in many of the other countries that I've lived in. Um, and so while I, I hope this doesn't sound like a sticking your head in the sand, um, but for me, part of it is drawing boundaries as well. And so mm -hmm. I just don't watch anywhere near as much news or stay up to date with it here as I would in other countries um, where I've, I've, I've lived before because I, I simply can't process the mm. levels of crime that occur um, versus what I'm used to. Um, I think part of it as well is accepting that um, I can only make so much of a difference as an individual. Um, and part of what has made having a podcast and a book um, so valuable is that it essentially creates platforms um, for yourself. And so you can share your views and have an audience that you may not otherwise have had. So I think um, contributing and giving back to the community in ways that I hope will make a small amount of benefit and knowing that there are lots of people out there who want to see a better world and incrementally each of those changes makes you know a, a bigger wave of difference so my little ripples only do so much but having faith in the fact that there are other people with shared causes shared values also making their little ripples um is what keeps me going yeah and you're right it's you know because it's like these grains of sands which make up the largest deserts and these drops in the ocean make up the largest oceans um, and I was having that conversation with a young lad here yesterday. He wants to become a police officer. And I laughed because I was like, you do realize the kind of books that I write. 
You know, I, I write about police corruption and systemic abuse and corporate corruption and government corruption. These are the things I write about and human rights abuses, you know, from individuals to individuals, as well as from the systemic abuse that we see. And some people say to me, um, how can you do this? Like, how does that impact you? You know, because I'm always giggling. And it's like, well, you get to a point where you go, if I don't do something, and if I'm not part of shining a light on this darkness, how are we going to solve it? How are we going to bring a plethora of different ideas and diverse ideas together so that we can come up with a solution that helps everybody? And you mentioned there about not wanting to stick your head in the sand. People are like, Dawn, you stay very quiet on this whole pandemic thing. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Because for me, it changes so much. It changes so quickly that um and you get held accountable as a public figure you get held accountable for what you're saying and when something is changing so quickly you can't even keep up with it it's like what is my focus here is my focus to be a happy healthy version of myself making a positive difference in the world or is it about joining um, a rhetoric of either side of the coin and becoming all consumed by that and actually forgetting what i'm here to do what purpose i'm here to give and live out in the world. Um, so like with you and the work that you do in the compliance um, and the great women in compliance podcast, tell us a bit more about the, the great women in compliance. I, I like this title very much because there are some incredible women out there in the world. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. Um, in nearing the end of December um, of, of 2018, uh, Lisa Fine and I were in a wider group chat at a conference and uh, some of our friends are podcasters or had been before us and we noticed that it was very male dominated but compliance itself isn't actually a male dominated uh, field in my opinion. Um, there are a lot of uh, women around, there's a lot of female representation and even at the C-suite level um, there are, uh, there's a good proportion of women which is fantastic. But in the podcast space, the voice of women seems to be missing. So we wondered if we could fill that gap. Lisa and I were not podcast experts at all. I don't think I'd even <laughs> listened to one at the point of which we decided to, to record our first episode. <laughs> I've listened to a few. <laughs> yeah. And so what that showed me as well is that, you know, you can really set your mind to anything you want to. You mm. don't have to have a natural talent or aptitude for anything. You just have to have a will and a desire to make a difference or to try something new. And sometimes it's not about making a difference. Mm. Sometimes it's about just showing yourself that you can. Um, and we had fairly low expectations, um, perhaps because we didn't have a, a great deal of experience in it. We hadn't tested the market anyway. We just dove right on in. Um, sometimes and that's the best way. That's my preferred way. Um, it's actually not Lisa's, which is really interesting. Um, so I'm, you know, thinking back now, what I didn't know at the time. So I am very much a, you know, I'm not a, a big on sort of planning and, and stuff. I like to just try and adjust as I go along. Whereas Lisa, my co-host, is a lot more thoughtful about things. And, um, but in, in terms of the the impetus for the podcast and how it all came about, we moved pretty quickly. Um, we were very fortunate in that we had friends who had been doing it for a while and they were willing to advise us and even help us record our first few episodes. So we felt really well supported. And these were gentlemen in the field that helped us and, and wanted to see us be successful. So um, one of my colleagues, Tom Fox, he has a compliance podcast network. He actually named the podcast um, the name for him just kind of came out. Um, I think it may have even been at that very first meeting when we were talking about it. So we went from there and um, we now get 2,000 people listening in per episode, which in the great scheme of things in the world probably doesn't sound like very much. But when you think about our target audience, which is really mm. English-speaking women in ethics and compliance, suddenly that number seems pretty large. So we're very happy with uh, the results, the outcome, the reception, and um, it's led to great things. Uh, Lisa and I have, for want of a better word, um, regularly received fan mail, and I'm gonna—I call it that to, to be a little bit facetious. But when you think about what fan mail is, it essentially is appreciation to someone for what they've done, what they stand for, and Absolutely. who they are, and and that is essentially um, the 
the, the communications that we receive from our audience. So it has been an incredibly fulfilling, somewhat surprising and a wild ride that took us into publishing a book. And uh, I've always known that uh, writing has, is not one of my strengths. And I think a lot of people have a sort of a secret dream to want to be an author. Oh, if, um, I had a, if I had a dollar for everyone who said, I'm going to write a book, I would never need to sell exactly. another book in my own life. <laughs> so that was that was me. I said, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if one day I had a book? But I know I'm never going to have a book. I just kind of like that pipe dream idea. And yet it happened um, mm. with a little help from my friends, 100%. Um, but again, just goes to show you that all you need to do is start, really. Mm. Um, you don't need to be the best. Um, you don't need to actually know what you're doing, but you do need to take some active steps towards getting yourself to the finish and relying on and, and getting help from people who are better positioned to finish the project um, as, a, as a, a great support. And I think you've just touched on a couple of really important points there. Well, I don't think I know you have. One is getting the help because I, in um, a conversation I've just had with Jenny, the editor of House of Preeminence, we've just recorded an episode. We see all of these books out there and all these magazine covers and you're just like, oh, no, no. <laughs> Why did you put your name to that? Why have you put other women's names? Why have you allowed someone to put your, their name, your name to that publication? Because it's not done to a good enough standard. And that's not just by my standards. That's by retail outlets. Um, and if you're looking at getting your book distributed or on these advertising carousels at Amazon and BookBubs and all the other, you know, and all of the, the front of house uh, displays in bookstores, if you want your book there, then it needs to be of a professional standard. And if you're not a designer, hello, Dawn's in the room, not a designer. Yep, yep. <laughs> I know what looks good, but I'd still be playing with Photoshop <laughs> and Canva or whatever. Um, I, that's not my role. That's not my zone of genius. And once you mm. know your zone of genius, you get the help for people that can help you. Mm. I mean, starting this podcast, I had people helping me. Um, I'm on the, you know, and this is a private platform. Um, so it's not a free platform. It is a paid for platform because I know that some of the subjects that I talk about are not part of complying with the global narrative. And I know a lot of my friends have had their podcast taken down and the help that they give. And I'm going to give a shout out to Dave at Blueberry Podcasting because he's been absolutely brilliant. Um, the amount of help that he's given the time and, you know, and the help that I've had from the guys at Genius Links, um, like Isaac, he's there. And without their help, that I wouldn't have actually been able to, you know, and to accelerate the results and the spread of the podcast and the books as much. And you mentioned something about the number of listeners that you have. And I think this is something that a lot of people overlook because someone said to me, oh, um, you need to get a lot more reviews for your books. And I'm like, yeah, I would love more reviews. The challenge I have is some of the subjects I talk about some of my readers prefer to message me privately because if their name is seen reviewing one of the subjects that my book is about, uh, sorry, what some of the subjects my books are about, that identifies them to audiences where they would rather not risk their name being seen. So there is that. But also when you've got writing a book on fiction um, that, you know, for example, my youngest son, he wants some Halo books for his birthday. You know, you go and look at the Halo books and, you know, they've got hundreds of reviews. And we have to remember that 1% of review, you, an author will probably only get 1% of their readership reviewing their books, um, which is an interesting fact. <laughs> um, so when you write books in the genre of human rights and social justice, cultural diversity and in trauma, that market is very, very niche, very niche. So the number of readers in there is going to be a lot smaller. Mm. Um, so the number of reviews that you're going to get is going to be a lot smaller. Naturally. And I know that if I was um, writing a book such as, um, I don't know, Eat, Pray, Love, you know, it's mm. something that lots of people can relate to. Mm. Not a lot of people can relate to human rights abuses or, mm. so, or traumas or would want to read a book about that. 
But that doesn't mean to say just because our readership or our listeners or our number of our reviews are not high in numbers Mm -hmm. that we should stop. And then again, what is high in number and what Mm -hmm. isn't high in number? And is it because I wanted us to move into the fact that you were actually approached by a publisher to actually write your book. And you mentioned that there is there's an air of prestige about that rather than you going down the self-publishing route. Can you just share with us the, um, the journey that this book took um, yeah, sure. and, this, and why you feel that, that you being approached gives you more of an air of prestige than writing it for yourself? Yeah, that's an, an interesting point. So um, we, Lisa and I were approached by um, a, um, an acquaintance of ours, a colleague in the field, uh, Sarah Haddon, who um, has a compliance media uh, company um, as well as a publishing company. And she said, I love what you're doing with Great Women in Compliance. And um, I have an idea for a book that I would like you to author. And so um, unlike the podcast, which was our idea, the book wasn't. Um, And so the reason why I talk about the era of prestige is that I had a, a fairly hurtful conversation with um, uh, a friend who said something, you know, as we were getting close to publishing the book, she said, um, oh, you know, congratulations on this. Um, You know, having a book is one of my um, dreams, but I'm going to do it properly. I'm not going to self-publish. And I thought, well, first off, we're not self-publishing. But second, um, what is wrong with self-publishing? It is having the confidence in yourself Um, And having that proactivity that you want to write a book and you're not letting anything stop you, you're just getting out there and doing it. You haven't got the support of someone who's pushing you along and telling you exactly what to do. You've got the gumption and the balls to say, I want to do this. I'm going to make it happen. And look at me, I just made it happen. And it's no different for me. It's no different to being a self-published author, to being an entrepreneur or starting Mm -hmm. your own business. Mm-hmm. there is no difference you believe Brave. in yourself yeah so much that you will go you know what I am going to do this by myself and I did actually start out on my journey by going to a publisher um and um it took and I was like I, I don't like the way they're taking my book I don't know where, I don't like where they want to go they don't I don't trust it and there was just it was just not where I wanted to go with my book And it just felt so out of alignment with who I am and what I wanted Mm. to say and how I wanted my book presented. Um, So I tried to get it back. It took me over three years to get my manuscript back from them and to sort all all the contractual issues. Um, And then I started publishing it myself. And then as my author coaching business grew, Mm. it was a natural next step for me to publish my client's work. And then I became this publisher and now we're, you know, we've got um, international bestsellers under our belts. We've got Amazon's red hot releases. We're entering awards. My books and my clients' books are being uh, being selected by the top universities in the UK to be put into their libraries. And it's not always about um, the, for me, like you said, that when you get approached, it's recognition that you're doing something great and that the publisher has an idea. I mean, one of the books that we're doing at the moment, I approached a friend of mine, Clarissa, who has a podcast called Thriving Through Menopause, because I was like looking for all this stuff. You know, I'm 44 now and I'm like, okay, is this a sign of the menopause? Is this not? Is this just mm. weird because I'm here? Is it change of climate? Mm. Um, and I started looking and I was like, well, hang on a second, these books are all written by men. These are all very clinical. These are all very boring. And what do they know about menopause? Mm-hmm. If us women don't know anything about menopause because it's ha- and it's happening to our bodies, how are these men supposed to know? And the ones that were written by women were very clinical, very depressing. And I'm like, oh my God, shoot me now. Mm-hmm. So I was like, come on, Clarissa, we've got to do something. So we've mm-hmm. now created a book um, together. We're just in the final stages of editing. Um, and it, we're calling it Putting Menopause on the Map, which by the time this show goes out will actually be launched. Mm. And I think that's the thing. When you know that something needs to be done or there's an idea like Great Women in Compliance um, and we're actually passionate about making a difference in the world, why would we stop? Why would we allow anything to stop us or anyone to stop us? Mm. 
but this view that your your friend has um, it is one of it's a very popular opinion very popular opinion so you won an award you won an award for this book mm. very recently which was incredible I was I squealed when I read that I was like oh, oh go Mary you. <laughs> you're very welcome very well deserved so tell us about the award and how, what was the process for you well, uh, I learned from you a while back that there is no sense in uh, not tooting your own horn. So I'm going to tell you, we actually just won two awards. Um, so, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I'm really, really stoked about it. Um, so the, you be. the first one is a, a nonfiction book of the year award. Uh, and the second one is a diversity award, which is a really <sighs> lovely recognition e- e- either Either accolade um, is a nice one. And uh, Lisa and I are, are just over the moon about it. Um, there are many contributors to the book as well. And so it allowed us to have a community-based project um, mm. that really set the scene for many people to have their words, their voices amplified. And so um, the... Awards weren't necessary recognition for us. We felt pretty darn chuffed with ourselves having just done a book as it was and having had a chance to meet new people and work together to a a common goal. The awards were really just the icing on the cake for us in Mm. terms of, um, you know, expressing that, yeah, we took a chance on doing something where we hadn't, again, tested the market, dove right in, and yet well-received. Absolutely. Oh, that is just brilliant that you've received those awards. I'm so, so happy for you. Thank you. Really happy for you. So what's next then? So you've got the podcast and you, you're staying in the States or are you moving onwards? Because, I mean, I want to track back, actually, because you said that you'd lived in Asia and the Middle East. Now, as we both know, and many of my listeners will know, that they are very large regions of the world. Um, just take us back to Asia. Whereabouts in Asia were you? So I've, uh, I started out in Singapore and have lived there twice now. Um, so different life stages, which made for different chapters and different lives in Singapore. I lived in Hong Kong um, for a couple of years as well. Excellent. And the Middle East? Middle East, I was in the um, UAE and uh, based in Dubai and working for a power generation company out there as their head of compliance. So you've always been in compliance throughout. What what led Mary to compliance? Because like Mm. I said at the top of the show, compliance isn't really, uh, I I like to break the rules. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, compliance is an area that I kind of fell into, um, like many others, First off, many people fall into it. Um, my vintage or older tend to have because it's a newer discipline. Um, many of us came into it via antitrust or competition law, as we call it in our home countries. Um, and uh, I started out in New Zealand doing investigations in the areas of data privacy and antitrust for regulators. And it really was the perfect storm of experience when anti-corruption um, didn't have um, a, a firm footing quite yet in Asia for me to take those skills and put them under the, the uh, compliance umbrella um, on the anti-corruption side. So um, unfortunately, my story is not unique. Uh, so many of us um, fell into it. Um, but I feel like it's my calling. It's not just a job for me. It is a place where I feel like it suits me so much better than traditional areas of the law. So I studied law at home. I thought I was going to be a lawyer um, and uh, I am trained in that sense. Uh, I currently work in the legal department of my company as well as a compliance uh, department. But compliance is very squarely what I feel is the right place for me to be. There's a lot of opportunity to trailblaze, um, a lot of gray area still. Um, And unlike legal, I think there is there is more of an emphasis or a need to rely on your interpersonal skills. As a lawyer in a discipline that's been around for a much longer period of time, you can say, yeah, you can do this or you can't do that. And people really respect you immediately. And compliance, a lot of the time, if you say, oh, that makes me nervous um, or a flat out no, people hate that and they're less accepting of it. Um, my belief around that is because it's just simply a less 
established area. And so if someone tells you you can't put something in a contract because it's unenforceable, people are okay. But so if in compliance, you tell someone, I think it's super risky for you to deal with this third party who has a reputation and track record of paying bribes and it could very well get us into trouble. They're like, oh, you sure there's no way around that? Um, <laughs> and so uh, I, I really like that aspect. I like the problem solving, the whole, okay, so what is your goal that you want to achieve? And even though your first idea for how you want to get there sounds super risky and I don't think we have the appetite for that, I do want to figure out how we can achieve whatever your goal is. So let's troubleshoot and think of ways in which we can still get you what you want, um, but without the associated risk or less risk. Hmm. I think I'm glad you said that, mentioned the anti-corruption there and how we can problem solve because a lot of people will probably be surprised that I've got somebody on the show that talks about compliance because, you know, I mean, if we look at the, the dictionary definition, it is the, I've written it down, I'm going to read it so that I didn't make it right. The, the action or fact of complying with a wish or command is the first definition that we've like. And then it's like the property of a material undergoing elastic de, uh, deformation, deformation, sorry, or a gas change in volume when subjected to force. Um, and Although I say to people, I, I don't like following the rules. Um, for me, I always say to my children, smart people don't follow stupid rules. Mm. And, the, and we had this huge discussion about it. And I'm saying like, the, for me, a stupid rule is something that has not been thought about. It's just been implemented off the back foot or in a moment of uh, anger or because I said so moment to mm -hmm. parenting. Mm -hmm. Or you've got those rules that are still being implemented and enforced upon us today that are from hundreds of years ago. Because as you and I both know, the law has a lot of old laws with lots of clauses um, and lots of acts added to it. And very good. Um, oh, what was his name? Um, there's a Alfred Tennyson, I believe it was. So Alfred Tennyson said that lawyers are the master manipulators of words. Um, and they get to play with the law in a way that suits their own purpose or their, their, whether they're prosecuting or defending. Um, and I have a lot of lawyer friends and obviously I, I studied quite a bit of the, the law back in 2015 to 2017 when I was studying human rights law, uh, criminal law and family law. And I think one of the things that people forget that what when, when you're working in compliance um, or you're wanting to expose, for me, it's exposing the corruption so we can say, right, how can we work together? How can we take this subject and change it for, instead of it happening to us, shift it into how, we can, uh, how it happened for us? So, for example, the people in the sequel series who shared their stories with me, the stories aren't so much about the abuse that happened to them. It's about how they said, okay, this happened for me. I'm using this alternative healing modality and I'm going on to thrive. It's more about how they've gone on to thrive past the abuse and the trauma that they went through. And for me, it very much relates to a lot of the work that you're doing. It's like, okay, we want you to avoid having these problems. We want to make sure that we are making safe and we're making an environment that's profitable um happy um and successful for everybody that's here just like a mother would say to their child don't stick mm -hmm. your hand in the oven it's going to hurt mm -hmm. or it's going to burn you mm -hmm. and it's very much the same thing it might be very different sides of the coin but it, fundamentally our work is no different in a lot of ways would you agree with that yeah, I think that's right. Um, and what what you've described is really the difference between a good compliance officer and, and 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 someone who's not so effective. So when you unilaterally push out rules um, without consulting with the people who are actually going to be affected by them or pragmatically applying them on a day to day basis, you're setting yourself up for failure. When you push out something unilaterally and you don't explain the why behind it. Um, you're going to have less buy-in. So, you know, I, I agree with you um, that it, it, stupid rules um, are, are not great to, to deal with. And, you know, the because I said so stuff, 
Um, mm. Or even for me, I, I find that, you know, saying, oh, because I want to keep you out of jail, to me, that's still not enough. Like, I want to explain to people, um, we want to do business fairly. So instead of saying, you know, I don't want you to bribe, it's focusing on our shared values of things we, we, we want to promote, we want to see. So speaking in an asset-based way. We want to do business fairly, and that means instead of cutting corners, so things like entering into antitrust cartels, paying bribes, we want to rely on the quality um, products that our colleagues have manufactured for us, or um, our service, our, uh, our patient care is so superior by our colleagues who we uh, entrust as nurses. That's what I want you to be focusing on and selling not cutting corners by doing business unfairly. And mm -hmm. so having the, that dialogue instead of that, just pushing something out um, and involving people in the program in the first place. So when, when we do a new initiative, um, for me, it's not enough, enough to just have a pilot um, you know, business group testing something out. I want to involve people even earlier than that. And I think that's mm -hmm. fair because I ask my colleagues, if you plan on, you know, acquiring a new business, please involve me early and often. And it's only fair that I should do the same. If I'm going to be creating policies and procedures that I expect my colleagues to be dealing with, then I should involve them early and often in return. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where it comes back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. When we know what's going on and we know what our rights are, we know what is expected of us, within an organization, then we get to live by them and we get to embody them and they become a way of life. And we're all, we've all got that buy-in. And the reason why I make those, um, because whether they are the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you know, where you've got those 30 articles that say that these are the rules for, you know, us to all live in a peaceful and just society. And these are the rules for us to uh, work together successfully within an organization. I mean, I'm in a co-living space here at the moment. I was having a conversation with the, the, the woman who owns it. I get an invitation. We're having a New Year's Eve party and it's until 4 a.m. in the morning on New Year's Eve. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, you mean I can't go to bed at 10 past midnight then? <laughs> okay. But it's been opened up to the public. And um, I'm like, okay, for me, I felt that I didn't have a choice because I live here and me being, I mean, I'm on the top floor, so I have the biggest apartment, I have the ocean view um, and the party will be right above me. Um, so I said, well, you've not left me much choice. She goes, well, no, you always have a choice. I said, like, well, not really, I don't, do I? I said, because I don't know anybody here. Yes, I could go somewhere else, but then I would probably return at just con midnight mm. and then I'd want to go to sleep, but you'll still all be partying on the roof until four. Mm. I, I, I have a great fondness for a lot of people here. So if I'm going to spend New Year's Eve anywhere while I'm here in Colombia, then I want to spend it with these people. Mm. But what I was saying to her is that had you have discussed this with the residents beforehand, I would have felt included in that process mm. and not that I've been left without a choice. Mm. And I think this is what we're saying, that we have these choices. We are allowed to make these choices. And if we're in an environment where we're not being given the choice or we're not being involved in the decision-making process or the creation process, mm. then it impacts our human rights. It takes away our inalienable right to choose. And sometimes we can, we're working for an organization and they just change the goalposts or that what's expected of us. Like I was mentioning a friend of mine in Australia at the moment. He is being faced with comply or lose your job. But the compliance that he's being faced with goes against his inalienable rights as a human being. And you have a very difficult job, at, you know, balancing all of this. And I just want you to know that I have a huge amount of respect for you, Mary, and the work that you do and for the women and the gentlemen that do work in compliance, um, because you, you, they often say you're caught in the middle, you're playing piggy in the middle. Um, and there's something that my sensei used to say to us about bad habits are easy to make but hard to live with. Good habits are hard to make, but easy to live with. 
And I really feel that that does sum up quite a lot of uh, the compliance work that goes on in the world. Would you, how would you react to that uh, quote from my, my old sensei? Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I think sometimes as well, um, the medicine that's good for us doesn't taste good initially. Mm. Um, and sometimes we tend to focus on our short-term goals versus our long-term state and benefits. And um, compliance is a bit like that. So the decisions you make now, um, they, they may not impact you in a year's time, um, but they very well might uh, in 10, 15 years. And at the end of the day, who do you want to look back on? What kind of person do you want to be when it comes mm. to reevaluating your life, reviewing it, reflecting? How do you want other people to see you and think of you? So um, I, I, I like that quote. I think there's a lot of truth to it. Um, and you're right, being in compliance is hard. Um, a, a lot of the time, the, you know, the word has negative meaning, as I, I think you've um, touched on earlier. And so that's why I love to use the words integrity and ethics when I talk about what I do, because I think they're so much more positive and asset-based, um, but also a lot more relatable, because really no one, no one does like stupid rules. We, we don't want to follow things that we can't make sense of. Um, or that we can't see a benefit to, to doing. So um, I think it's a, a nice way to state it. Okay. All right then. Well, I think that, um, I mean, I've covered everything that I wanted to speak. I mean, I could talk to you about lots of other things, but, you know, that would just go off on different tangents today. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me and for sharing with us your journey of compliance. Um, and the great news about your two book awards. I'm just so happy for you. And I will be including links to Mary's book, Mary and uh, Lisa's book, uh, in the notes. I will also be including a link to the podcast in the notes here. So for those of you who would like to get in touch with Mary or get in touch with Lisa via their podcast or get your hands on their books, then you will be able to do that. But once again, thank you so much for joining me today, Mary, during the Christmas and New Year holiday. And I wish you all the very best and may you just be blown away with book awards and abundance in every area. Thank you for, for blessing me and, and right back at you, Dawn. Thank you for the work that you do, the difference that you make and um, the, the light that you shed upon everything in the world that needs it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, then, ladies and gentlemen, in the words of Mortiva, enjoy the ride. Ciao for now. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Truth Serum Podcast. You can follow Dawn directly through her Instagram account, instagram.com forward slash real Dawn Bates. This is an invitation only podcast. That said, if you would like to speak with us or come on the show, please send an email through hello at dawnbates.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Remember to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Sharing is caring, so share away. Until next time, folks, grab a good book, see a sunset, and expand your knowledge and experience.